When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Missing Lines. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some objectivities that caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week it's two up top. That means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good, thanks Dan. And given what's gone on this weekend, I'm actually really looking forward to getting into this episode. Me too. And also we're joined by Fulham fan Matthew. Matthew, how are things with you, my friend? I hope all is well. Yes, all good. I think like Carl, given the subject matter that we're going to be talking about, I think it should be a very interesting debate. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a juicy one. But before we get into all of that, let's do the social media bits. Otherwise, we'll be talking into the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce we're now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network, that being Sports Social. So check out the URL and all the links posted throughout the week on the Real Football Pod account. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to Linktree slash Real Football Cast, but adopt between the R and the E, you get 10 podcast platforms to choose from. It's never been easier to listen to this show. Right then, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? We can only go to North London and the storm that's brewed after Tottenham versus Liverpool on Saturday evening. Cole, I know personally we've benefited from a massive lapse in human error, but what we saw on Saturday certainly does VAR no favours. Yeah, 100%, Dan. You know, I think when people are already kind of, you know, the majority of fans, I think, are not for VAR, then it's this kind of incident that kind of just pushes them over the edge. And, you know, even if you're not, you know, there might be lots of fans that are kind of seeing the funny side of it, given how, how angry Liverpool are. But I think as well, you kind of also think, but this could be us next week that are on the end of a decision like that. And I think while most of us can accept that, you know, when it comes to fouls or handballs, it's all subjective. And and what one person thinks is a foul, another person might not think is a foul. The same with handball. I think the one thing we all expect from VAR is when these decisions are there to be made, which are a matter of fact and can be proven with the technology, then these are the, these are the incidents that you don't expect them to get wrong. So I think, you know, the weekend, this could be a big marker in the future of VAR and how it's used and, and the technology that we get we get brought in possibly after this. Um, because I think, you know, as we'll, sure we'll discuss later, there is a better solution to this that, that's being used in certain formats, but not in the Premier League. And I think we just need to make sure that we get these decisions right because this, this was bread and butter and it should not have been 
a cock up the size that it has become. Yeah, you're right. We will touch on the tech in a few moments. But Matthew, let's look at the PGMOL and another apology. We said a few weeks back when we had the last one that they're not really worth the paper they're printed on. But there has been some form of development in that the belief is the audio will soon be released. Now, like an apology, what can you achieve from this? Or does it at least go some way to removing any form of conspiracy theories that are in place at the moment? I think it does release some, you know, some conspiracy theories. And again, with the audio that's going to be released again, and based on what we've heard from sort of other sources and, you know, the reports have come out with regards to how the, you know, the Luis Luis Diaz decision um, was made. I think it will go about to, I'd say, end conspiracies, but it's just going to, it's another thing after the event. Like if it happened again, this goes back to what we've been saying, Fosco, if it was, if we were able to hear the audio not necessarily in real time, but as the checks were going on and all that sort of stuff, it would make it would make it a lot easier for fans to believe and to understand what's going on. But back to the apology, I think I think the fact that they are giving out so many po- apologies now should be you know you wonder where the there's there's got to be a form of embarrassment in there from the PGMOL and the fact they're having to give so many and now especially in this situation, you wonder if that's going to be you know as Carl says the turning point to some much greater. And bigger change that you know. Whilst I've always been a fan of VAR from the start, it's clear that there needs to be there needs to be some changes involved. Well, let's look at the events and how they unfolded on Saturday. So, Carl Lewis Diaz puts the ball in the net. The flag goes up by the on-field assistant referee Darren England and Dan Cook, that being the VAR and the assistant VAR, assume that the on-field decision was a goal, and therefore their check is quickly complete. No lines drawn in the usual protocol. It does make you wonder, though, in the small window that was available. Nobody has decided to say, do you know what, guys, this is wrong. We need to overturn it. Why do you think that's happened? Yeah, it's something I think we've touched on before, isn't it, Dan, around, you know, you, you do wonder whether there's an element of kind of do 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 all the officials that are working on VAR feel they have the authority to kind of overrule another person who's maybe making the decisions, you know, and, and that's something I think that you really need to, you know, if you're Howard Webb and you want to change things, you need to make sure that people feel empowered, that they can speak up when they need to. You know, we would say we've touched on it before. Does an official feel like he can tell the referee that he needs to change his mind? Does he feel he can, you know, is is the VAR assistant, if he's, you know, feels he's less of an official than the actual VAR official, does he have the confidence to say, uh, you've made a mistake here, you know, we need to rectify this? Or does he think, oh, I'm not saying nothing because I don't want to get myself blackballed or or look bad here? And I think that's a real issue that we need to kind of, you know, these are the sort of things that I think after this, we need to kind of really delve in. And like, as you say, there should have been some bravery to kind of break the protocol and say, you know, listen, I think we there's there's been a mistake made here and we need to rectify this. And, you know, the same issue for me goes, which we probably might speak about later, is, is part of the Jota red card where, you know, I, I feel we need VAR to actually correct what are wrongdoings in the game. Um, and the fact at the moment they don't feel like they've got the power to do that, that is slightly concerning and something that needs to change. Now, Matthew, we've been sending each other notes from the almighty, Lord Almighty, shall I say, Dale Johnson. One of those mentioned that there was a very small window to go against protocol and override the completed VAR decision on Saturday. Surely in this instance, as a football fan, you would rather see protocol broken and the right decision made rather than what we actually saw at the weekend. 
Absolutely. I think most people would want protocol break, especially in such an egregious era like this. But obviously in the the um, in real time and everything, you can kind of understand why why referees, because, again, they've they've got rules to follow. and They've got the protocol. You know, once the game is kicked off, once the game's restarted, they can't go back and change it again in such an egregious thing like this. If it was marginally said, OK, we can go away. But in such a, and a big fixture like this as well, something that could go very long to deciding the, uh, the you know, arguably maybe the title of European places and all that sort of thing. You would like to think the referees would say, you know what, we you know we collectively have made the mistake. We need to go, you know, we need to go back and fix it. This isn't, you know, trying to, we're not sticking it up to VAR, for instance, and say, no, the technology's got it wrong. This is a, this were a human error that we need to fix. So I think most football fans would understand if they'd say, you know, we know, we understand that, you can't restart the play after the plays, you know, after the ball's been kicked or whatever. But in a manner such as this, where there's been a bit of miscommunication on the referee's hand, maybe they would want to say, right, let's take let's take a step back and and go through it again. Well, I guess the Pandora's box would be, let's say play is restarted. You know, Tottenham are in possession, the free kick's taken, it goes upfield, then it's drawn back. Liverpool get a goal. If you're a Spurs fan, which obviously me and Cole are, but subjectively you'd be thinking. Why has this happened to us? How unlucky have we been that protocol has decided to be snapped open and Liverpool have got a goal? So that's the kind of flip side. But as you say, Matthew, you know, surely you should be doing the right things rather than sort of worrying about what could unfold. I mean, Liverpool have been really harshly done by. There's no doubt about that. At the same time, Carl, there's no precedent to ever replay a game that is subject to a bad VAR call or PGMOL apology. With this in mind, it almost seems as Tottenham have been framed as the guilty party, as if it's their doing in all of this. You know, is that a fair stance to make? Yeah, I think I think that you know there is that element there, isn't it, Dan? Where you sit there and say, well, it, that that's just say we know it's not going to, but that's just say the game was replayed, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you say Liverpool go and win that game, and suddenly Spurs don't get the points. Spurs quite rightly are now saying so because an official made a mistake. We've now almost, if you like, been punished by the fact that we now have lost those three points that we had. And it was no fault of our own. So, as you say, I think, you know, there is a feeling that, you know, we do come across almost as the villains that people are kind of going, oh, well, Spurs, you know, Spurs involved in this. And and ultimately, it isn't anything to do. You know, we've just been the beneficiaries of some bad officiating on the day. Um, so yeah, I think we do have to remember you know, we weren't the villains, but uh, there's there's going to be no chance that that game is replayed or suddenly Liverpool get given that goal that makes that game a two-two draw and each team actually get one point because you know you're sitting there going, well, how many games in the past could you go back and do that to? And ultimately, we'd probably never end the season if we were going to come replay games based off of bad decisions. And ultimately you would then have Wolves potentially piping up and saying, well, hold on, we want that game replayed at Luton the other week because, you know, there was a game as well where the officials forgot what the rules were for a minute and gave a penalty that should never have stood. So the the amount of requests you'd get for for replays and matches to be, you know, results to be looked at would, would be incredible. Oh, it'd be silly, wouldn't it? You know, where'd you draw the line? The 1966 World Cup final, for example? It'd just it'd go on and on, wouldn't it? So, Matthew, in terms of Liverpool, they went on to release a statement on Sunday saying that, in their words, they will explore the range of options available given the clear need for escalation and resolution. Now, me reading between the lines, I'm thinking surely they're not going to push for a replay or, as Carl says, let's say they lose the league 
by a point, is it their legal ramifications coming into the campaign? I think that I think it's more legal ramifications at the end of the campaign. Again, all the mess on Twitter and everything where people say, "Oh, Liverpool asking for it." They didn't ask for replay. I'm pretty sure they're. I'm pretty sure they're not going to. Nor do they want to be the the arbitrators of that. Especially for an instance that happened in the you know in the first half of the game. If it was a last minute thing, like the only one that's coming to mind off the top of my head is the Pedro Mendes and Old Trafford. Like that, you could make the argument so deep in lane to the game that in this instance, if you want to have unmitigated circuit, that you could maybe request to say, oh, give us the three points or give us the two additional or whatever. That you can under- somewhat understand, not totally agree with, some understand. But re- having a replay for a game where you know, they had plenty of other chances to score and everything, I never think that's, I never thought that was ever going to be in their mind. I do think that I'd say legal ramifications further down the line. If it is something as simple as, you know, if they do miss out on, not even necessarily the title, but moving from third to second, you know, by a point, then maybe they say, well, hang on, you know, give us the extra, however many million is like 5 million or whatever for the league placing or something like that. I think that is possibly more down what they might go down. I don't think that, I don't think it will come to that, but if that's what they're talking about, I think it's more likely to lean towards that than asking for a game to be replayed. Yeah. I guess that's probably the more logical angle. Let's say Liverpool finish fifth. And they miss out the Champions League and the abundance of money that comes with that, let's say 150 million for starters. A legal claim there of even 50 million then becomes a lot more interesting. So I think watch this space, but I'd be really, really surprised if A, they asked for the replay, B, it actually took place because at the end of the day, Spurs have got to agree to it. The only similar thing I can remember is when Arsenal played Sheffield United in the FA Cup and Arsene Wenger allowed the game to be replayed after a throw in was chased by an Arsenal player. And then Arsenal scored somewhat incorrectly. That was replayed, but that was on kind of Arsenal doing Sheffield United a favour. There's no precedent, as I say. So, I don't know. I mean, I'd be really, really surprised on that front. Carl, at the same time, would you be surprised if technology, as you mentioned, comes into the Premier League sooner rather than later? We've already got it. So, what I mean is semi-automated referees. We've seen it in the World Cup. We've seen it in the Champions League. Ironically, the Premier League clubs voted it down in the summer. Surely that vote's going to go the other way when it comes round again. Yeah, and... and... You know, I'm not actually sure why the clubs actually get to vote on stuff like that. Because, you know, for me, if the technology has moved on and you've now got a better form of the technology, then this this shouldn't be something that clubs get to vote on. You know, the, the bottom line should be, well, listen, we've advanced this technology and we've made it better and there's a better version of it out there now. So ultimately, this is be the version we're using. You know, I don't think we should have the clubs cherry picking what version of the technology they want to be used in the league. Um, you know, if, if it's good enough for the Champions League, which is seen as, you know, the ultimate of ultimate competitions in, in world football, then why is it not good enough for the Premier League? And why are clubs getting to pick and choose what kind of technology comes in? I just doesn't sit right with me. And I think ultimately this decision, this should be where now the people are going back to the clubs and saying, well, look, here you go. This is why you need this technology. We've advanced it. It's better. We're bringing this in because these are the sorts of issues that hopefully this will kind of stop from happening in the future. Now, Matthew, much has been made of Darren England and Dan Cook being stood down for additional duties that happened at the weekend. Another interesting point is the fact that both officials were in the UAE just 48 hours before. Now, I'm not saying that this in itself is the reason for human error, but should our officials in the Premier League be moonlighting abroad when they're working the same weekend back home? Um, 
I'm not too sure. I'm not. I get. I. I'm not too sure if it's. It's a. If it's that big a problem because you know moonlight because they moonlight in Europe as well because they referee. I'm pretty sure they must referee Europa League games on Thursdays and everything. So going to the UAE, I mean, it's not that far. You know, uh, I mean, it's a bit it, far of a journey rather. But in terms of like going outside their job remit, it's not exactly the the worst crime that they can ever commit. So I. I don't really have an issue with that. I don't want to see. It. I saw some people. Uh, using it as an excuse of oh they were you know they were overworked so they weren't focusing correctly on so I'm not I'm not buying that because I'm pretty sure if they were being paid for it it would have been comfortable play and they weren't exactly in cattle class they would have been well looked after they would have been well rested so I'm not buying that that's a that that's a reasonable excuse and if they want to work elsewhere then by all means go for it. Okay Matthew I'll stay with you let's expand on that point. Is the issue here then the Premier League needs to play or sorry pay more above the going rate, the market rate at the moment, to stop referees having to go across the, the world 48 hours earlier? Uh, possibly. I think then you might be, you again, the expectation is maybe that then you get a better, you know, a higher standard of refereeing because maybe they think, oh, you know, I'm not, I, don't, I have no idea what referee salaries are, but rather than, you know, I might lose out on my 70,000 year job. I'm just plucking numbers here. Oh, if I do badly, I'm going to lose out on my 200,000 pound a year job. Uh, I think that, that's a fair, I'd, is a fair argument, but and given the money that's in the Premier League at the moment, something you could probably see happening for, further down the line. But I, I don't want to see it used as a, as a as an excuse uh, still, personally. Okay, then let's focus on what actually happened on the pitch in terms of decisions that actually took place. One of them, Carl, that's been massively overlooked and in the kind of list of misdemeanours is right at the bottom, is the fact that Liverpool's goal came from a free kick which was incorrectly awarded. So in all of this... That's kind of quickly forgotten, but that goes back to your point about the referees need to be undoing their mistakes. Yeah, I, you know, I think you know we we didn't really see it during the game, did you? But when you see the tackle from Ndoggy um, on Gatpo that kind of results in the free kick again, it's one of those that you go, well, actually, you know, he actually nicks the ball and he doesn't actually foul the guy. You know, unfortunately. He just gets his ankle caught from the tackle. And ultimately, you would sit there and go, well, that is a really harsh free kick to receive. Um, and, and it comes down to the Jota first yellow card, doesn't it? You know, I, I want to see VAR overturning what, for me, are, are, are clear and obvious errors. And, you know, when you look at the Jota first yellow card, anyone who knows anything about football looks at that replay and says he never touched a guy. So, yes, he's gone down, but it wasn't because of a foul. And that's where I want to see VAR stepping in and actually going and saying to a referee, listen, I know you just booked this guy for that tackle, but on replay, we've seen that he doesn't actually touch him, he doesn't foul him, so you need to remove that yellow card and rescind that. That's the sort of stuff that I want to see VAR getting involved with because that's the stuff that actually has a real impact on the game, as we saw, you know, not long after that first yellow card. So, you know, I don't buy this stuff that, well, VAR doesn't really get involved in that kind of thing because we don't actually need to make a big deal of it or stop the game necessarily. It can just be, listen, the next time the ball goes out, you just need to rescind that yellow card and it can be done without interrupting the game at all. And it's what the you know it's the right thing to do, and that for me is what we want to use the technology for. Well, Carl, stay with you because obviously there was a sending off before Jota went off. That being Curtis Jones. Now, I know sometimes when you look at a sending off in slow motion, it looks a lot worse than it is. Unfortunately, for Curtis Jones, this one looked bad at full speed. 
Yeah, I, I was actually, you know what, Dan? I've actually been really amazed at the amount of people that have been coming out and saying they don't think it was a red card. Because for me, I kind of think it is a reckless tackle. It is one of those studs are high. They're high up the leg. Yes, I know people are trying to say, yeah, but he's trying to win the ball. It's a reckless, dangerous tackle that puts an opposing player in, you know, at risk. Because, you know, if Basuma's leg is planted firmer, and Jones goes through harder, it is a leg-breaking tackle. And I, I've been actually amazed at the amount of people that have been trying to come out and actually kind of, like, say it isn't a red card offence. For me, like, as you say, Dan, even when you see it in real time, I go, that looks over the top and reckless and dangerous with the way the studs are high. And, yeah, you know, as soon as you saw the replay, it was like, well, yeah, that's a yellow card. I do have some sympathy with the view that, when the ref goes to the monitor and the first image is a steal of Jones's boot halfway up Basuma's leg, that that possibly puts something in the referee's mind already. But if I was a referee, if I saw the tackle again at full speed in a replay, I'd still come to the same conclusion. Well, this is it, Matthew, because a lot of mitigating circumstances been that Jones slipped on the ball and then the tackle was made. But as Carl says, when you consider the positioning of his foot on Basuma it then makes it really hard for a red card not to be shown. Yeah, I think that's what I sort of made down in my notes. Is that, you know, I've seen red cards given for that over the years. And you think, again, if this is the letter of the law and this is how it should be, then, yeah, it's a red. Even though I still personally think it's a slightly harsh rule that, you know, you're going for the ball. You're clearly going for the ball. It just, as I say, just rolls over and just slips and then and then catches the player. So I can understand why, though, why, my, why Curtis Jones might feel a little bit aggrieved by it, but... Yeah, if this is if this is what we're going by, then yeah, you, then yeah, you can kind of understand why a red card was was given in this instance. Now, Cole, obviously you mentioned Diogo Jota and his eventual red card. The yellow card that we saw first time obviously was harsh on him. However, a player of his experience shouldn't be giving the referee such an easy decision to make so soon after. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, and that, and that's what he owes an apology to his teammates for because you know, being an experienced footballer like he is, you know, don't you, that whether right or wrongly you've picked up that first yellow card, from that point on, you just can't go in making silly tackles and lunging in from behind the player. And ultimately, yes, you know, that that tackle he made, knowing he was on a booking, was just ridiculous. And, and one that ultimately you could say has cost Liverpool the game because I, I still you still wouldn't have ruled them out 10 v 11 of actually getting something from the game. Uh, we saw that a few weeks ago at St. James's Park. So he massively let himself and the side down there. Um, but yes, ultimately unfortunate because he probably shouldn't have even been on a booking when he makes that tackle for the second. With that being said, Matthew, something we've highlighted in the past is that players usually get a free hit so soon after a booking. From that aspect, it was actually quite refreshing for a referee to not be afraid to make two quick fire decisions for the same player. I agree because we have, you know, again, we've also also talked about, you know, referees, how they can be sort of lenient and I would say lax with the rules. And so, like, you don't give a red card in the first minute of the game and or because you don't want to ruin the game. So, yeah, as you say, for a referee to say, no, this is definitely two, this is two yellow card, well, in his eyes, two yellow card offences, even though you've just picked one up, I'm still going to follow through rather than be, you know, rather than, you know, give you the benefit of the doubt. So, in one instance, you know, on a bad day overall for a referee, good to see one. You know, sticking with the rules all the way through, as it were. Now, Carl, in all the madness, we shouldn't forget that Tottenham did actually win the game by two goals to one. Because of this, Carl, has everyone been quick to forget, actually, a pretty decent Spurs performance? 
Yeah, I kind of think so, because you kind of get the impression that the view is, well, you only won by default, in a sense. And, and ultimately, you know, we, we did play well in the game. And, you know, we had lots of possession and we created some really decent chances. And on another day, you know, without Alisson being in such fine form, that could have ended up being free. 3-1-4-1 possibly because he pulled off a, a few brilliant brilliant saves um so yeah I, I do think it has kind of been forgotten that this was a really tough test for Tottenham and you know so soon after a, a one away at the Emirates as well that it showed the sort of character that the side has got that they can go into these big games now and be confident that they can possibly pull out a result now Matthew with the start that Spurs have had in the league do you think that playing once a week could actually work in their favour if the negative of not playing in Europe this season unfolds I guess this is the best way to turn it into a positive yeah I think that's something we saw discussed is you know there were some benefits for Spurs especially when you go through the Antipostokoglu uh, rebuild and I, I think he sort of he sort of mentioned that when he was playing uh, when he was going up uh, against against us in the Carabao Cup is that you know I don't have the games to experiment so I'm going to use the, the Carabao Cup as a way to experiment and it is clearly paying dividends because yeah, if they don't have the packed fixture schedule that other teams do, you know, we saw say the same with Chelsea. Um, obviously, it's taking them a little bit longer to get their to get their act together. But I think for a couple of those teams, yeah, if they're if they're not playing on a you know Thursday, Sunday, and everything, um, then yeah, it kind of does give them the advantage to be a lot more fresh and also give him a lot more time to actually spend time, you know, man- managing everything on the training ground to get things to get things better rather than having to be interrupted by resting on the Friday the day after a game and all that sort of stuff that goes with it. Right, there's still nine more matches to discuss and plenty of headlines to go with it. So first up, let's go to Molyneux, as Wolves got the better of Manchester City. Cole, there were even mutters of an invincible season in the week. Add this to the EFL Cup defeat to Newcastle and it's been a week to forget for Pep's men. Yeah, it's, it's not a week that they're, they're used to, are they, in, on the blue side of Manchester? Uh, and one that I think, you know, ultimately... It, it, it might just bring them down to earth slightly. Um, but one that they have to look back on and say, well, they were actually well beaten in, in two of those games. You know, And we've got to give a lot of credit. You know, lots of people are just looking at Man City and thinking, oh, they just didn't perform. But that would be taking a lot of credit away from Wolves on the day because they defended brilliantly and, and also hit them and took their chances when they needed to. Um, and given that I don't think many people would have forecast Wolves getting a result against Man City, this could be something that kickstarts Wolves' season. But I think City will they'll regroup. You know, I'm sure they've got so much quality that I don't think it will be a massive dent for them in their in their chase to kind of retain the title. I still think they're the favourites and, you know, you're not going to see many weekends where they're as blunt as they were this weekend. Well, Matthew, as Cole alludes to, to get the better of Manchester City, you have to be at your best defensively. And when you look at how Wolves played on Saturday, I think it's fair to say that Craig Dawson certainly led by example for the hosts. They did. And I just want to touch on something that Carl sort of brought up. Is that This this happens sort of every year for Manchester City. There's there always that one result that makes things, huh, how'd that happen? Like they lost to Hounslow Town at home last year. It usually happens at home. They lose to Hounslow Town. They've lost to Crystal Palace, have been in trouble for them. I think Wolves beat them a couple of years ago. So this is just the one result every week. These are, huh, how did they lose that? But back to your initial point. Um, yeah, Craig Dawson, you know, obviously having a bit of a career resurgence, and I think a team like Wolves was always going to be a great, of great benefit uh, for him because um, it seems like the, you know, a club of his size, as were being able to be you know, a solid, you know, proper centre back, 
Adamak is um is you know is going to be crucial for them because you know we always thought that Wolves, especially after the change that been made, they're going to need to have a solid defence in order to sort them out. And that was you know, evidence on uh, that was on show very well on Sunday, on Saturday rather. Well, defeat for City, a win for Arsenal has made things rather interesting before they meet this Sunday. So, Cole, last week I asked you about City going for the jugular at the Emirates. All of a sudden, is it the Gunners who smell blood before the weekend? Uh, I'm not sure, because as, as Matthew said there, you know, City have always been capable of slipping up in the odd game here and there where you go, oh, like, wow, that's a shock result. Um, you know, so... It, I don't think City will, like I say, they'll regroup and I think they'll still go into that game feeling that, well, listen, you know, we've got a chance to put a marker down. Um, it's Arsenal. The one thing that I think they'll find and will be in their favour in that game at the Emirates is Arsenal won't be sitting back and trying to soak up lots of pressure. They'll be looking to attack that will leave space that, you know, maybe Wolves weren't prepared to, to give Man City at the weekend. So I don't think that result will kind of change the outlook of that game too much. And I don't think it's Sunday going to send um, City into that game feeling nervous. And in the same way, if you're Arsenal you can't kind of think that you might have the upper hand because you know the sort of quality that City possess. But it does make that an exciting game because I think you'll have two sides that want to go and put a marker down and get the better of one another. Yeah, I think maybe just the fact that the gap is now one point. Were it four, I think City could have looked at that and thought, you know what, if we went to the Emirates and got a draw, worst case scenario, that four-point gap still there, still an extra match for Arsenal to claw it back. I just think now that... You kind of think, do City have to roll the dice a bit more and then maybe get themselves caught out, which leads to defeat? I think it's just adding an extra element to it, actually. So it's going to be even more fascinating than first thoughts. But, Matthew, in terms of fascinating, Kai Havertz hasn't really been that this season for Arsenal. He has managed to get a goal, though. Yes, it was a penalty. But from what I took from that was the celebration showed by the team. It seems that everyone's fully behind the German. And you'd think that now he's scored, regardless of being from the spot, that should offer him a huge lift. Yeah, I think I think you said it perfectly. The fact that the team, you know, is clearly have some have a lot of faith in him and stuff moving forward. That he, you know, this is just why you know this is one goal. Maybe he'll be able to add a couple more to his game from from open play. But the fact is, you know, Arteta and the you know the current Arsenal have, have sort of got this great bond together that is you know arguably making them greater than you know greater than some of their part. And you know, even after the you know the disaster or the uh, the uh, the mistakes that happened last season, it just goes to show that they've really they really are, you know, a team that can be um, threats to threats to anyone because they've got because they've got a great collective that can, you know, make them very good um, on any given day. Now, talking of huge lifts, it's fair to say that Bournemouth need one. Seven games without a league win under new manager Andoni Iriola. Cole, I know the Premier League is a cutthroat business, but how much time do you reckon the Spaniard has got? Yeah, I, I don't think he's going to get too long. And one of the reasons I don't think that, Dan, is, is the fact that it's it's the goal output that they're producing, isn't it? You know, that they don't look dangerous at all. You know, if they lost that game at the weekend 2-1 or something like that where they were looking dangerous and you just go, oh, well, on another day, you know, we might have got something out of that game. I think when you look at all their recent results and how toothless they kind of look going forward, that's the real worry. And as we know, you know, you can't afford to get sucked too far into that relegation battle before you think about making a change if you're going to. So I think if we see another couple of really poor performances like that, then I think, you know, he could be a good bet to be the first manager that, that's let go this season. Well, they've got Everton at the weekend. That's going to be almost a six-pointer this early in the season. But Matthew, let's stay on Bournemouth because when you consider the change from Gary O'Neill to Iriola, is there a sense that the change of style, 
the players that are involved, has it been too swift? It's almost as if it's not been smooth enough. I guess the, the counterpoint would be someone like Ange Postacoglu. Again, it's a, a, a smooth, sorry, a swift transition. But when you've got better players in inverted commas, I guess that transition is a lot easier. So has Iriola taken on too much in too quick a time? You took the words right out of my mouth. I think, yeah, there are some examples of players who, of teams rather, who are able to handle such a big, swift change like Spurs. But I think with Bournemouth, as you said, the talent of the players they have, they probably didn't need such a big shock to the system of having of having to ch- of having to change uh, managers, especially when it, especially after the after the job that Gary O'Neill uh, did from last year, where I think, okay, we've got this momentum from where he took us on and what he's able to do. Maybe we want to uh, push forward from that. But now we've got a manager with a totally new, um, different style and philosophies, and you know, maybe maybe the language barriers uh, playing a part in it as well. So, yeah, I think. It, it is proven to be a bit of a difficult, a bit a bit of a difficult task for them to, you know, for them to switch over. But I do still think that there's an, enough quality in there for them to be able to at least put up a very, very decent fight against relegation. Cole, now hindsight is wonderful in football. We all know that. In hindsight, were Bournemouth probably better off with Gary O'Neill because, you know, you look at the fixtures that Bournemouth have played under Gary O'Neill, they probably would have got at least one win out of those seven. So. You kind of look and think, why was the change made? It's not as if Bournemouth got relegated last season. It almost feels like unnecessary. It's, it's done now, it's too late, but why do it in the first place? Yeah, I think this as well, wasn't it, was the fact that you had new owners that think they want to go in a direction that um, might be something different and possibly be a long-term future for the club. But as we said, given that they managed to stay up the way they did last season and they, they seem to have a cohesive unit, then you might have thought, I, I was surprised that Gary O'Neill didn't get at least a start of the season yeah. and see how the campaign started. And then obviously, yeah, if they had a horrendous start, then you can understand the board thinking, well, look, yeah, listen, that, that that's made the change and that's going the direction we want to. But I was surprised that given they stayed up and he seemed to have a real positive impact, that they didn't at least give him a bit of time to see where he could take them. Now, Matthew, in terms of the vitality, are Bournemouth hamstrung by that with its size and the fact it can't make the same amount of revenue as a Tottenham stadium, as an old traffic, et cetera, et cetera. You can't build a stadium in a, in a day or what have you, but long term, are they better getting out the vitality? I think they are. I think, you know, even Luton Town admitted that, you know, because they, they're going through changes at their stadium, um, they realised that, you no, know, for the long term project, you know, as soon as we drop out of the Premier League, we're going to need more match day revenue. Um, as it were, so they need to so they need to make expansions and make changes. Um, yeah, I think Bournemouth are probably in the same because you look at you look at the size of that ground, it can't go as it can't go on forever. And if they do drop out of the Premier League, whilst you know they got the parachute payments and everything to keep them going, once those parachute payments run out, a size you know a club the size of that, it's going to be very very difficult for them to to be able to generate, you know, generate the money to generate the good players and everything to come in. So, yeah, whether or not it is expansion of the vitality, I've no idea what the layout of the ground is and everything. Um, whether it's, it's through expansion or moving somewhere else, I think, for the long-term safety of Bournemouth, especially a club that, you know, has, had, has gone through terrible um, uh, money problems in the past, you think that they, they might say, yeah, we need to have something a little bit more sustainable for the future. Carl, I guess a sledgehammer to crack a nut here. Would it be a rule that says a Premier League club has to have a minimum capacity of 15,000, 20,000. Maybe you get a year's grace to say, look, you're in the Premier League now. If you stay up next season, that stadium's got to be a lot bigger. Is that something you'd like to see? I, I guess the trouble is, it's that view of like, 
do, does anybody have the right to tell a club how to run and what they need to do to, to run themselves? And, you know, if we start putting limitations on, well, you can only be in the Premier League if you've got X, Y or Z, then I suppose we have to look at whether that's what's right for football and whether, you know, that rules out ever seeing, you know, some smaller clubs ever, you know, possibly making the dream of getting themselves to the Premier League. What I do find surprising is that when you consider how long Bournemouth have now been in and around the Premier League, that they maybe two or three seasons ago didn't think, listen, to, to, to make it really sustainable, we need to be in at least a minimum 20,000, 25,000-seater stadium, and that they haven't got that done or across the line already. So, you know, I think maybe you just you do have to sit there and say, do we have a right to tell people what to do? Maybe not. But then, you know, it, as you say, Dan, it does put limitations on where you can go, doesn't it? Absolutely. Now, Matthew, a lot of it is always how the Premier League is viewed around the world, the optics of not just in London, but Lagos as well. So if the Premier League were to put in this minimum capacity ruling, yes, it would look better for, you know, selling the game around the world. But would the league lose its character at the same time? I think I think there would be that element because, you know, because then you're sort of thinking, right, I mean, how big a fan base, and I'm not trying to be belittle ball things, but in, but in realistic, how big of a fan base do Bournemouth have out, you know, outside of, you know, outside of, you know, outside of Dorset? You think probably not all that much. So if they do expand it to, you no, know, to twenty thousand, say, once they, if they were to get back down to the Championship, then that, then that stadium does look half full. But whilst they're in the Premier League, think, oh, maybe that's when the tourists come in. And uh, we've had that problem. Um, at Fulham for a couple of years is that you know it's tourists they don't really get the match day atmosphere they don't really join in the chance that makes the whole ground quieter and they place the atmosphere all that sort of stuff so there are there are big risks associated with you know if you were to force teams to say you have to be a certain capacity it might look good they say it might look good on tv with the stands being filled but in terms of the actual match day atmosphere of going to the game and then also what it looks like you get long term whether or not 20,000 would be sustainable for a club. Again, if we're talking about Bournemouth, a, size, their, a club their size, rather. It, it it just seems like a little bit too heavy-handed on, in my eyes. OK, then they certainly suffered on the south coast. Brighton suffered in the West Midlands at the weekend. They shipped six goals to Aston Villa. Now, Cole, we've seen them lose to Nottingham Forest last season away 4-0. Everton at home, I think 5-2. Is this a, another example of the byproduct of how the Seagulls play? When it's good, it's great. But at the same time, a thrashing is always going to be around the corner. Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, I think they've always kind of had this that, that possibility through the course of the seasons, haven't they? Where they can go on sort of four or five, six weeks where you go, they look unstoppable. And then all of a sudden they have that odd week here and there where you go, oh, wow, Bournemouth lost 4-1 today. Like, who'd have, who'd have seen that coming? So I do think it is just the natural course of how their season tends to go. Um it, it, you know, it's one of those, although it's a bad result, it could be one of those that in the long term is a good result because it, it suddenly puts you back, you put your feet back on the floor, doesn't it? And if you're starting to get ideas where you might be thinking you're better than you are, then a performance and result like that can actually make you go in and say, listen, we don't just need to turn up each week and it, it happens. We have to put the work in. And they were particular. you know, that was one of the worst I've seen 
bought a Bournemouth side player over the last, say, maybe two seasons. So you'd have to think that maybe it's one of them results that as much as you don't want to be on the end of it, it could be enough that just reignites the fire and makes the players work a little bit harder. But they'll be fine. They do just, you know, they are capable of having those odd results here and there. Matthew, I guess, do you have to look at it as a sense of net profit in that if the playing style at Brighton was completely different, they don't get as many points as they've got already, that being 15 off the top of my head. So, yes, they may have lost in big fashion at the weekend, but under Potter, they may only be on eight, nine points at this stage anyway. Yeah, and it's sort of the the, you know, the risk that they are willing to take, you know, if they're being more expansive and their style of play. Yes, they can put up some decent results, but, you know, we saw against Everton last season, they went, was it 5-0, 5-1 or something like that? They lost a, they lost a home um, to them, so they are capable of these of these big results, but in the long term, as you say, with the players they have, they're going to they're gonna win more games than they lose. So, if it, so, so long as it keeps them within the European, you know, within the European picture, and if it can get the results, you know, on the continent, then by then by all means go for it. It's, it's working for them. At the same time, Carl, Aston Villa must be thinking, you know, we're not really part of the European conversation just yet, but more performances like that, I'm not saying they're going to get six every week, and the top six, top seven is not really out of reach, is it? No, definitely. I, I think Villa are one of those dark horse teams this season that like as you say they don't get spoke about in say the hunt for sort of top four around that sort of mark. But when you look at the style of football that they're playing at the moment and the results they're getting, then, you know, and the manager that they've got there, you actually have to think they are one of these dark horses that when they get going and they play well, they're a match for anyone on their day. And I think Villa are in for a really good season this year. Now, Matthew, Ollie Watkins played a huge part in Villa's win at the weekend. A goal against Chelsea the week before, three against Brighton. If Villa are to mix it in the top six slash seven, they are going to need this rich vein of goals to continue, aren't they? They are, you know, because he's been, I mean, the predominant, you know, source of goals for them for the past couple of years. And whilst he's had those, you know, those bit of those uh, blips over the past, um, over the past couple of months, if yeah, if he's going to be, if Aston Villa rather are going to be competing you know, on on multiple fronts as well, because they're in the they've got Europe on their on their mind as well, then he's going to have to be in in top form. But you do have to wonder if they want to if they want to push on, do they need to bring in someone else just to offer them, you know, that that rotation option. Uh, just in case he isn't firing or in case he needs something else, because they don't want to be too reliant on him now that he's showing this rich vein of form. Now, Marcus Rashford, he's struggling with goals. So in Manchester United, the England international has only scored one this season and was largely anonymous at home to Crystal Palace on Saturday. Cole, what do you put this down to? Is it a slight change of role which isn't getting the best out of him? I, I'm not too sure because I, I think this is one of the problems in Marcus Rashford, isn't he? That he can have spells where he looks unplayable and world-class, and then he can have spells where it, he just has a game like the weekend, where you just sort of think he goes through and doesn't really have much of an impact. I just worry about whether he's ever going to have the consistency in his game to be what we call that sort of like world-class, elite-level sort of striker-stroke winger that he, he's being asked to do. Um you know, it, it's certainly not working this season, but then ultimately it's not working for the whole team. So maybe that's one of the things that's affecting him, you know, the, the, as the team, they're not performing. And, you know, unfortunately, that's having a knock on effect to his game. But I do worry about consistency with, with Marcus. I guess, Matthew, in terms of Manchester United, they're having no luck with injuries at the moment. I know Ten Hag is now kind of saying that there's too much football being played and we need to think about player welfare. Has he got a point? Now, Matthew, Manchester United are getting hit by injuries and quite a big level at the moment. Eric Ten Hag has been talking about player welfare. 
too much football, all that kind of stuff. Has he got a point? I, I, I don't know, because this is the sort of point that Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp bring up, and we sort of accuse them of moaning, of like, you know, Jurgen Klopp saying, oh, my players are too tired, but you look into it and it's the fact that, oh, we played you know, Virgil van Dijk in a meaningless sixth game of the Europe, uh, the Champions League group stage or whatever when they were already through. So I don't want to buy, I don't want to buy too much into it from Eric Ten Hag, from someone who has, you know, whilst the Man United fans might not think about it, but he has been given money by the Glazers to buy and to have a good squad. And this is Man United who have had the, you know, arguably the greatest academy, uh, well, within England at least. They've always got players to choose from. So if you don't like it, then, you know, be a better coach, get some of the, you know, you've got a big squad to deal with get them up to a decent level. So when it comes to Eric Ten Hag, indeed many of the big managers I've said, I don't really take much. I don't really take much of these comments. It does seem a bit more like whining than, um, you know, you should be doing a better job of being a coach at it and managing it. Yeah, I mean, when you're winning matches, it's not really an issue, is it? It's only when you're losing and your luck's against you and you've got an injury list, which is getting longer and longer, it all becomes more pertinent. But, you know, if you're in the top four of the Premier League, all of a sudden injuries, you've aren't too bad you've got a big squad Palace don't have a big squad Carl but they are doing the business in the main this season there's always that danger when Roy Hodgson was made re-permanent that he'd go back to type and sort of play Roy style football we're not seeing that at all are we we're sort of seeing more of what we saw at the back end of the last season yeah definitely you know and, and Palace are all the better for it aren't they you know I know they took a lot of stick in the week for the sort of performance and the side that they they put out and the performance they put in in the Carabao Cup but they really came back and answered that the best way possible, didn't they? Because it was a much better performance this weekend. And as you say, Roy seems to have them looking, you know, really solid defensively. And they've got some really good players going forward who seem to be gelling. And, you know, Roy does seem to be able to get the best out of them. And I suppose for Palace, long may it continue for them. But, you know, I certainly think if you as a travelling team going to Old Trafford, then Roy's the man you want in the dugout. Yeah, saw his record on match of the day and he said he couldn't even remember most of them but I mean was it five five <laughs> unbeaten all those clubs and you think well he's obviously on to something Joachim Anderson was on to the ball which led to the winner an amazing goal from him Cole just touched on their midweek performance and Roy Hodgson came in for a lot of stick after making so many changes at the same time Matthew those changes were certainly justified come Saturday yeah exactly and, you know, we look at what Crystal Palace's aims probably are when it comes to the when it comes to um, their their ambitions and they're more likely to have success or be considered successful if they were to finish 11th in the Premier League rather than you know you look at the teams that are left in the Carabao Cup probably if they're going out in the quarterfinals or the semifinals or something like that so Roger as you know experienced manager knows exactly how to get the best out of his sides and knows when to rotate in the right time and you know it paid dividends for them on Saturday because you know they lost a, you know they lost in the League Cup but the Three points in the Premier League could be incredibly more crucial for them um, in the long run, especially if Roy Hodgson wants to leave the leave the club in a very good space at the end of the season. Well, three points could be crucial for Luton. They picked up their first set of those at the weekend with a win over Everton. So, after Everton got the better of Brentford the week before, you kind of think, oh, actually, with the way the promoted teams are playing and Everton have found a win, things aren't going to be too bad. Now, Carl, it feels like one step forward and two steps back for Sean Dyche and his players. 
Yeah, this was this was a massive game, wasn't it, for Everton? Because they'd actually looked really good in the previous two games, and you started to think that maybe they was on the verge of turning a corner, and then bam, straight away you go and lose at home to Luton, who everyone is tipping to possibly be a team that you know beat Derby's lowest points total. So that's a defeat that I think really knocks the stuffing out of you just when you thought you would get going and you know given Everton's home record right now and losing to Luton you start to worry about well where's the next home win coming because you know if we don't beat this sort of side at home and that's no disrespect to Luton at all but you know Everton at home would have thought listen, this is one where we definitely get three points on the board so I think if you're an Everton fan it's just one of those that, again, you just just as you start to get excited, you get knocked straight back down to earth. And you do worry about where that next home win's coming from. Well, it just feels such a missed opportunity for them because if they beat Luton, they're already six points clear of them going into October. Still so much football to be played, obviously, but the outlook all of a sudden looks a lot calmer over the blue side of blue half of Merseyside. Sorry. But Matthew, with that defeat, it came in front of Everton's prospective new owners and they would have quickly learned at that ground, that when things aren't going right for Everton, the fans work against the players rather than with them. Surely that's a culture that has to change to help the club going forward. I think it does, and you'd hope that you know when these new prospective owners came in, maybe it just does give them a bit of a you know, a bit of a lift, and you know they get some some form of grace uh, from the Everton fans. But I think there's also the benefit of you know if the Everton fans are showing you know their displeasure and everything, then it might kick the new owners to say, oh, we've got to make you no. Know, we might get them on our side initially because we're not the old we're not the old ownership, but we need to do something to make sure we keep them on our side. So whether that be, you know, if that's in the January transfer window or if there's, you know, getting rid, maybe getting rid of it would be harsh, but getting rid of Sean Dyche and appointing a new, more progressive, bigger name manager and everything, someone that can take them forward, then they're going to need to make those big swings um, in order to make sure that they, they aren't quickly turned on. Because if they're in, because, if Everton are in the relegation battle come the end of the season, I think whoever the owner is, the the fans are going to be angry, so they probably don't want to go through uh, go through all that mess. Well, yeah, I mean, if they're relegated with new owners, you think, where can they turn there? Because obviously they've then sold all the silver. You, you worry about a leverage buyout or anything like that. You kind of think, well, yes, it's new owners, but if it's not a good deal for the club as a whole and they get relegated, it could be even worse. We spoke about a bad week for Man City. On the flip side, it was a great week for Newcastle. Not only are they in the EFL Cup next round, but also it's three Premier League wins in a row. And Cole, after getting the better of Burnley, you'd have to say that Eddie Howe's men are back in the groove. Yeah, they look to be back in the groove, don't they? And, you know, obviously they kind of made, you know, light work of Burnley at the weekend. You know, that that could have been even more, you know, they, they didn't take their chances when they came. Um, but they looked really solid and professional. And when you consider as well beating Man City in the week, I think Newcastle, would, you know, it, there is something happening there and something to be confident about. And, you know, that's the sort of game that, again, it is a bit of a banana skin because it's one now that you expect Newcastle to win. And ultimately, those players now look like they're able to live up to that expectancy. Now, Matthew, the groove is going to be slightly tempered by the absence of Harvey Barnes. He's set to be out for three months. How much of a miss do you reckon that will be? Um, not a big, not a big miss. I think obviously Harvey Barnes has got a new lease of life at Newcastle, but I think with the squad that they have, they should be able to get through it. And you know, it's not as if it's you know, whilst they might drop points, you know, a couple of points here and there, there's still plenty of time for them to be able to get them back with Harvey Barnes, um, back to the team. You know, if this was 
if this was being in, uh, if he was injured in March, saying he was out for the rest of the season, and they were two points off a Champions League place, then you might think, oh, this might be, you know, this might be of no turning point for them. But you look all the way around the score, they should have enough to at least keep themselves, you know, within touching distance for when Harvey Barnes gets back, and then he can uh, come back and give him that and give him, you know, that new boost, as it were. Yeah, I think they've lost an option in terms of depth. If it was Anthony Gordon injured for three months, I think that's more of a blow. Obviously, Barnes has kind of been more a sub to start the season. So it's not the biggest blow, but when you've lost an option to come off the bench and change the game late on, that's probably where they're going to miss out. But as you say, Matthew, there's still plenty of the season for him to affect what Newcastle do. Nottingham Forest and Brentford played out a one-all draw on Sunday. Cole, do you think Matt Turner should have been penalised in the box for his follow-through on Wissa? To the surprise of many, no penalty here was given. Yeah, this was an, this is another one, isn't it, for the, the the VAR this weekend, where you do sit there and go, uh, you kind of scratch your head to think, how is it that someone can look at that and not go, well, that's a penalty. You know, the goalkeeper, unfortunately, he dwells on the ball, he gets it nicked off him, and then, you know, he almost like just clears the forward out. So I think Brentford can feel really aggrieved that they didn't get a penalty there, and he obviously will have to breathe a massive sigh of release because I think he's got off a one. Now, Matthew, in terms of Hounslow Town, it's no winning five now in the Premier League. I was going to mention this last week, but to me, it seems as if Mark Flecken seems to be a rather weak link between the sticks. Yeah, I think there was obviously, whilst he wasn't the most important player, that was still, you know, Ivan Tony. They've got a lot of players on outfield. But it just goes to show you that whilst I was never a big fan of him, um, well, I was a big fan of uh, him helping us in the playoff final, but David Raya is always just that. It was always more important to, uh, to Hounslow Town than maybe we gave him credit for. And whilst people might think, oh, you get rid of the goalkeeper, it's not, you know, you can just plug him. You know, plug and play any goalkeeper in that situation. You know, as Man United are finding out with um, with Onana, you need to make sure if you are replacing a goalkeeper, they it has to be the bang on right decision. Otherwise, it is going to cost you pretty. It is going to cost you big time. Yeah, it's not really a lack of goals at the other end, is it? It's more his goalkeeping. I mean, against Newcastle, it was an error for the penalty. Didn't even jump for Nottingham Forest goal at the weekends. I'm trying to think of the other error which. I was going to mention last week, who do they play against Everton? He looked really nervy. I just think, yeah, there's something not there. And we've seen goalkeepers before into the Premier League with a lack of confidence. The best example being Cole, West Ham's, is it Roberto? You must remember him, surely. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, they would have been better with a training cone (laughs) in between the sticks at that point, wouldn't they? (laughs) They really would have. Let's stand West Ham, though, because they picked up a routine win over Sheffield United Cole. I guess that defeat for the Blades only adds to the pressure being placed on Paul Heckingbottom's shoulders. Yeah, and again, you know, obviously, you know, it's hard when you're coming off the back of that 8-0 drubbing on the weekend. And, you know, the last thing you probably want to do is go away from home. You probably like to be in front of the home fans to set something right. But they were, again, well beaten, weren't they? And, you know, you kind of got the impression that West Ham didn't need to be in first gear to get that win over the line. They kind of just cruised to it. And that again, I think is the real concern at the moment if you're a team. You know, if you're making teams have to fight to beat you, then you see some sort of, you know, shoots of optimism. But Sheffield United are just kind of turning up, getting rolled over. And ultimately, again, it's a manager that you wonder, well, how long will the ball give him? How long does that sort of loyalty last before someone thinks, well, if we're going to have a shot at trying to survive, we've got to make a change with the man, you know, sitting in the dugout. So, yeah, they need something to happen for them quickly. 
well, a week from now will be in the start of the October international break. You know, I'd be very surprised if one club, that being Bournemouth, Sheffield United, hasn't rolled the dice. You know, we might be back in a couple of weeks' time talking about a new manager. I don't think we'll be talking about a new manager at Craven Cottage yet, Matthew. But I know you want to get some stuff off your chest of the, the West London derby defeat on Monday night. The floor is yours. Uh, no, it's not just... Uh, it's just the fact that we... It's, it's, it's really hard to point out and make a new point that I haven't said already, but... A game like that against a very weak Chelsea side that we're thinking, you know, I know we beat them last year, but it is always good to beat Chelsea. And the fact that we can't take advantage of such a weak Chelsea side just goes to show that there's clearly a lot of errors that need to be fixed, you know, relying on older players. Tim Ream is probably in the last stages. How long can we hold on to him? Willie Ann, I wasn't a big fan of bringing him back. And now it's maybe showing that bringing him back and was probably the wrong decision rather than going with someone a lot younger. It was just a it was just a microcosm of there are a lot of problems at Fulham and whilst you know some wins may be able to paper over the cracks, we need to sort something out long term. It's just it was just a, it was just a bit of a rough night, that was all. Well last point to you then Matthew. You've got Sheffield United at home at the weekends. With the rough Monday you've had, surely you need to be winning that one. Yeah, again, perfect. No winning, no winning uh, cures all problems and all that sort of stuff. So if we if we can't pick up a win against Sheffield United, then you probably wonder what exactly are we looking to do for the rest of the season? Because if we can't beat them, then there are some serious problems on board. Yeah, we'll watch this space and we'll be back next week because we've hit full time. So I just need to do the admin before we wrap up. Matthew, thanks for your time this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed that one. Yep, great as always. And Carl, thanks for wearing the captain's armband. I hope you'll join me next time. Yeah, looking forward to it, Dan. Absolutely. Right, cheers, guys, and also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.